Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good morning. Good morning. Hey, thank y'all so much for being here today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. And um, I know you've already heard this this morning, but we want to say a special welcome to you, especially if you're new with us today. We want you to know today that you are our honored guest, and we want you to feel that way in every single way this morning. And so make sure that you fill out that blue connect card on your seat. We'd love to send you that gift card to a local coffee shop this morning just to say thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you coming out and, uh, and worshiping with us this morning. So thank you so much for being here. And uh, as you've already heard, I just want to reiterate and reemphasize that Easter's coming up quick. And so coming up here on March 31st. We're going to have Easter and we're going to have um, bouncy houses for kids. We're going to have um, an Easter egg hunt for them and just a great experience for them. We're also going to have a coffee bar and some great breakfast treats in the lobby for us and uh, a bunch of other things as we celebrate our risen Savior together. And we're so excited to be able to do that with you all. But um, also, as you heard, we're going to be going to two services because if you remember back in Christmas of this year, we had over 180 people that God brought to our church and we praise God for that. But also just remember uh, that our lobby was absolutely packed. Our kids area was maxed out. And so in order to make room for those new people that God's going to bring, we want to go to two services for those four weeks right around the Easter time. And so we're going to be doing that at 9.15 and 11 a.m. And we're going to do that starting on March 17th here in just a couple weeks, March 24th, 31st, which is Easter Sunday. And then lastly on April 7th, and then coming up on April 14th, we're going to go back to that one service, just like we're doing this morning at 10 a.m. And so um, if you have any questions about that, uh, any concerns or anything like that, you can email Email me at cartermundy at redemptionroanoke.com. No, I'm just kidding. If you have any questions about that at all, you can definitely find me. We'd love to tell you more about the, the reason that we're going to do that and all those things. And so I'd love to tell you more about that later after service. But as we're looking at our sermon for today, we're in a series entitled uh, Extremely Ordinary Christianity. And we're looking at the book of Philippians. And this morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Um, But as you do that, I want you to think about this question together this morning. I want us to think about this. If you knew that you had 24 hours left to live, what would you do? If you knew that you had only 24 hours left to live on this earth, what would you do with that time? How would you spend your time? And as I've been thinking about that question myself as a believer, I know that I'm gonna be with Jesus and I praise God for that, that's great. But also at the same time, I have a a family here. I have friends that I deeply care for. And so I feel like everything I did would be calculated, right? I wouldn't wanna waste any of these precious seconds that God has given me. And right, so I want everything I do in this last time to matter. And so as I was thinking about that, I, I was also thinking about John 17, And we see in John 17 of the Bible that there was a man that knew he had about 24 hours left to live on this earth, and that's our Savior, Jesus. And what he is doing with this precious time that he has left, he is praying, and he is not just praying, but he is begging God that his followers would be united. He's begging God. If you guys remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is praying and begging uh, God that we would be united together as the way that the God, the Father that he is, the way the Holy Spirit, they are united as one, that all followers of him would be united as well. And so that the rest of the world would know that God sent Jesus for us. And so what we're gonna see this morning as we look at Paul here in Philippians is that he is taking Jesus's prayer and his teaching on unity and he is charging the Philippians and us to be unified. And for most of us, we know that we're supposed to be unified in the church, right? When I say, when I say the word unity, we know that. We know that it's important. But I think for many of us, we don't know or we forget why we should be unified. 
Like if I were to ask you this morning, if I were to go around individually and say, why should we be unified? We would have 50, 60 different answers and all of them could be good, right? They could be important and helpful. But I think as we're gonna see here today in Philippians that Paul is getting at the reason that we should be unified is to bring others in. We're unified around the mission that God has given us to make disciples of all people. The same way that Jesus was unified with the Father and the Spirit for his mission of coming to the earth to die for us. And so when we are unified, we are able to fulfill the mission together. When we're unified, we're able to fulfill this mission that God has given us together. And most of you um, in this room know that my wife and I, we have a just turned five month old named Henry. And we praise God for that. We're so thankful for him. But currently he is going through something called a four month sleep regression. I don't know if, if you've ever heard of that before. It's awful, um, but yes. And he just turned five months and we're still going through that four month sleep regression. So for a month now we are going through it. And we're first time parents. So naturally we Google everything, right? There's a freck on his arm. What's going on, Google? Is he okay? Oh my goodness, what's going on? And so we're doing this for everything that is, is happening right now. Google's our best friend and we're asking others as well. But we found out after Googling this four month sleep regression and learning about it, that it can last for weeks or even months. And so we're begging God, Lord, would you take this thorn in the flesh away right now? But uh, see, I knew I was self-centered, but nothing shows how wicked you can get when you're tired and losing sleep. Parents, can I get an amen somebody on that one? Amen, yes. And some of the most beautiful and uplifting conversation my wife and I have ever had is when Henry woke up every two to three hours or every 20 minutes. It's a joke, by the way, it's a joke, right? You see how wicked and deceitful that you are in those moments, right? I know so many of you know this. And at this age, and I know as he gets older, it's gonna be the same way for the next few years, especially. At this age, there is only one person on his mind, right? And it's himself, it's himself. When he's upset, he's gonna let you know and do whatever he can to make sure that you're giving him attention and he needs that. But at the same time, we are all that way. We can see that our, as parents, that our kids, as much as we love them, are born with this sinful, selfish nature. And the truth is we never grow out of it as adults ourselves. We may become more mature and may think of ourselves less, but at the end of the day, y'all, we all know we put ourselves first. The number one person on our mind most of the time is me, is myself. And this morning, what I want us to do individually is I want you to examine your heart this morning, examine your life and see if you may be the blood clot that is preventing revival and unity from coming to your life, your family in this church. And the reason I know that you might be the blood clot is because that I have been. And at times I continue to be the blood clot because of the pride that's in my own heart. And the thing that will prevent the mission from going forward in unity from coming to our church y'all is pride. That's what's gonna prevent it. It's the pride in our hearts because at the heart of every single sin that we will ever commit is pride. Pride is the completely anti-God state of mind. I know it's my way, I'm right, it's all about me. It's that completely anti-God state of mind. Behind that anger problem, it's pride. Behind the lust in our hearts, it's pride. Pride happens. Y'all, pride happens when the lines between the advancement of the kingdom of God and our personal agenda, when they get blurred, that's when pride happens. 
When the advancement of the kingdom happens and the lines between our personal agenda, when those lines get blurred, pride is happening. And if pride is what prevents us from being unified, and we know that we need to pursue unity for the mission, then we must pursue unity through humility. We have to pursue unity through humility. That's our main idea. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Pursue unity through humility. We must do this for the sake of the mission. And so let's go ahead and read our passage of scripture this morning together. And then we're gonna come back and take it in smaller chunks so we can learn from this here. So let's read Philippians chapter two, one through 11. It'll be on the screen as well. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not, um, should look not out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come in as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, amen. Amen, y'all, I remember hearing this passage for the first time, uh, even though I grew up in church, I really heard it for the first time and got to read it when I was in Bible college years ago. And I remember, this is one of those passages as I was thinking about and preparing for this message, it kind of speaks for itself. You know, there's some passages that you wanna preach and you wanna explain, but I think for many of us in this room hearing that, and I pray that it invokes those same feelings that I had, I remember tears running down my face, realizing how deeply that Jesus loved loves me and how much that he would humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I feel like this is one this morning that we can just look at together and say, man, look at how God, good God is. Look at how good he is. And as Carter has already mentioned during this series, Paul is writing this letter, the book of Philippians to a church that's located in the ancient city of Philippi. And he is writing from prison because of the mission and all the things that he's doing for the kingdom of God. He has been put in prison and he's writing it. And so just a little, that's a little bit of background for us. But this morning, what I want us to see from this passage of scripture is three ways to pursue unity through humility. Three ways that we can pursue unity through humility. And the first one is this, put others first. That's what Paul says first, put others first. And what we see here in the first four verses of chapter two is this continuation of what Carter preached on last week. If you remember, we talked about living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As citizens of heaven, we're to live worthy of this calling of the gospel. And Paul is saying that we need to do that outside of the church. Yes, for outsiders, but we also need to live worthily inside the church because Paul knew that toughing it out in the face of external pressures would not be enough. The Philippians and us today, y'all, we must be unified not only against our common foes, but also unified in heart, mind, and mutual love for one another. 
And so if we're going to be unified, then we must put, we start by putting others first, if we're gonna be unified. So what Paul does here in the first verse is he's giving us this intentional plea. He's, he's wanting us to think, so why do we need to be unified? What's the, the reason behind that? And so what he's doing is he's giving us this intentional plea in verse one to remember what Jesus has done for us in salvation. It's made up of four parts there in verse one, beginning with, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and even though we see this word if before all four of these, uh, these encouragements that he's talking about, it's actually better translated with the word because. So if you're a note taker, if you write in your Bible, highly encourage you to write that because instead of that word, if it can be confusing, but write the word because. And so it would be better read because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is consolation of love, because there is fellowship with the spirit, because there is affection and mercy. And Paul, what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring the mind the moment that you came to know Jesus. That's what he's doing for these readers as well. He's trying to get you to remember the encouragement that you felt to know the God of the universe loves you and that you are his. Do you remember that moment or that time when you trusted Jesus for the first time? Do you remember that moment? Does it come to mind now? I remember this moment in my own life. I remember I was a, a freshman in college uh, pursuing my version of the American dream and through different events, God led me away from those things and he turned all this selfish intention, uh, attention and ambition that I had for myself and he placed it on himself. And I remember being so overwhelmed with God's amazing grace during that time, realizing what Jesus had really done for me. And y'all, the problem is for us, the moment that we come to know Jesus from that moment until Jesus comes again or until we're with him, it's so easy as that distance starts to grow longer, it's so easy to, for, to forget that moment of the gospel when it changed our life. And so what Paul's doing here is he's trying to remember, he's trying to get us to remember those moments that God saved you, that the God of the universe, he loved you, that he died for you. He cares deeply for you and he has made you, he has adopted you into his family, that you were chosen by God, that he loves you so much. And Paul's trying to bring this moment to mind that we came to know Jesus, the encouragement that we felt. And so Paul's second reminder here, he says this, if there is any consolation of love or because there is consolation of love, this is referenced to the Philippians or our experience of Jesus's love. Paul wanted them to realize that they were loved unconditionally by Jesus who gave his life for them. Pastor J.D. Greer, who is a pastor at the Summit Church in the RDU area of North Carolina, he has a gospel prayer that I've said before that I try to pray every morning. He says this and he begins this prayer with, in Christ, there's nothing I could do to make you love me more and nothing I have done to make you love me less. Paul would go on to write some of the most famous words in the Bible. Later on, he would say in Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come, hostile powers, heights or depths or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, look at me this morning. God loves you. He loves you so deeply now and there is nothing that you or anyone could ever do past or present to change that fact. There is nothing that anyone could ever do to separate you from the love of Jesus. 
He loves you. And that's what Paul's doing this morning. He's saying, remember your salvation. Remember that Jesus loves you unconditionally. So in the darkest parts of our lives, when unity is the hardest, remember that Jesus cares for you so much that he loves you. And you need to have that mindset going into those conversations, going into those moments. And the third reminder that Paul gives us here is fellowship with the spirit. The Greek word for fellowship here is koinonia. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter one that we heard before in verse five. Paul mentions this mutual partnership in the gospel and this supernatural unity that the spirit gives us. And so we realize that it's this supernatural, the ability to even be unified comes from the spirit that's inside of us as believers, right? I've heard it said before that you have more in common with another Christian around the world that looks totally different from you, speaks another language and another socioeconomic class. You have more in common with them as a Christian than you do with your lost neighbor or your coworker that doesn't know Jesus, that looks similar to you, lives lives that are similar to you. This is all because of the Holy Spirit's work in this supernatural fellowship made possible through Jesus' sacrifice. We have more in common with those people because of this unity, this work of the spirit in our lives than we do with the people that look just like us here. And if we're ever gonna put others before ourselves, then y'all, this is where we must start. If we're ever gonna put others before ourselves, we have to start from this place by recalling the moment of salvation of our salvation and remembering that the only way that we can have unity is through the spirit's work in our lives. Paul goes on to say in verse two, he says to fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. And y'all, Paul is so passionate about this idea of unity through the gospel that he cared little about himself as long as the church was getting this right, right? Though he was in prison, you think about Paul's situation here. He was in prison on a capital charge, chained, guarded 24 seven, afflicted by those who should be his friends with execution at hand. He rested his joy in Christ and in the gospel and insisted that his joy would be complete if they lived out their, of their unity in the gospel. And that's all, the, Paul, that's all the, the happiness that Paul was looking for. Paul knew that people so unified in purpose wouldn't be con- concerned with trivial matters in the church or their personal preferences, right? He knew that to be gospel-oriented meant to be people-oriented, If we are gospel-oriented, then we're gonna be people-oriented as well. You can write that down. And so let me ask you this morning, are you others-oriented? Are you others-oriented? Are you putting your personal preferences aside for the sake of the mission here at Redemption? For unity in our church, and that is something that all of us, because of our sinful nature, because of the pride in our hearts that we have to wrestle with, We all have to wrestle with that. We put our personal preferences aside for the sake of the mission. We might not like all the worship songs that we sing or the way that we do certain things, but y'all, we put these things aside for the sake of the mission. That's why some of you in this room right now may be serving in areas that you're not particularly interested in or gifted in. And you're doing this because you're putting your personal preferences aside for the sake of the mission. You're doing that for the mission to see people come to know Jesus. So thank you so much by the way that you serve our church, even in areas that you might necessarily not want to do, but because right now we have a need and you wanna put those personal preferences aside for our church. And so thank you for that. And Paul finishes this section of scripture with these last two verses, verses three and four. He says this, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And y'all, if we're being honest this morning, nothing about these two verses is natural for us. Nothing about those two verses is natural. We are trained from birth based on the default posture of our hearts to look at others and pick out how we are better than them. That's what we do automatically, right? No one's default is humility. No one's default is everyone's better than me. Everyone's better than me. We don't have that mindset. 
Our default is, if we're being honest, let me find the area where that I am better than these people. So even if they're beating me here, I'll find the area that I am beating them in, or I'll justify their goodness or their ability in this area with um, some excuse that I made up myself, right? The Greek word for conceit is translated here as vainglory. It's this idea of pointless pride. People are literally conceited over nothing. And we should ask ourselves, as we're thinking about these two verses and how to apply it to our souls, our lives individually, we need to ask ourselves some questions that I feel like would be super helpful for us this morning. Do you worry more about your appearance than your impact on others? Do we worry more about our appearance, the way that we're going to look, whether it's at work, around coworkers, whether it's here, whether it's other places, do we worry more about our appearance than the impact that I could have on somebody around me? Number two, do you put more weight on your image and too little weight on your identity in Christ? Do you put more weight on your image and too little weight on your identity in Christ, who you are in Christ? Y'all, it affects the way that you live before him and others. I mean, our identity, that's the central thing that is most important about us, that our identity is in Jesus and him alone. And then number three, do you spend more time trying to look successful than being successful? Do you try more, you give more time to looking successful than actually being successful and doing the right things? You want to look successful instead of being effective for the kingdom of God. We do that. And then number four, are you seeking the applause of man over the approval of God? Are you seeking the applause of man over the approval of God? And Paul gives us, as we're thinking about those, Paul gives us these commands. And as we've already talked about, they're nearly impossible if it wasn't for the next verse, the verse five. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as we're looking at Jesus' example, this is, leads us to our second way to pursue unity through humility. As we said, we put others first, number one, but number two, we practice Jesus' example. We practice Jesus' example. This attitude that we're told in verse five, that comes from Christ, it's not natural to us. The Bible explains, get this, the Bible explains in Colossians 1 that the earth was created through Jesus. And it also explains that by the whole world, by his power, he sustains and holds the world together. That includes you and I and every person that's ever existed. And Jesus, during his road to the cross, as we're thinking about his humility on his road to the cross, he allowed men to spit on him and kill him. He allowed it. And you think about this, the glands necessary to work up the spit and the muscles necessary to fling that spit onto the face of Jesus were sustained by Jesus himself. Y'all, the very spit that was used to fling on his face, Jesus himself sustained that. Man, what humility that God could have, that Jesus could have in that moment because he knew his purpose. He knew the mission and what he was trying to do for us in those moments. Y'all, what humility. I remember reading a book a few years ago called Living the Cross-Centered Life. And in this book, I read one of the closest examples of Jesus' humility that we have. I remember the author, he retells a World War II story from Ernest Gordon. And he was a British captive in a Japanese uh, prison camp where the POWs were forced to build a railroad of death for transporting Japanese troops to the battlefront. They were tortured, starved, and worked to the point of exhaustion. And nearly 16,000 people in that POW camp died from, from these things. And Gordon survived these horrors of that experience. And he wrote about it in a book called Through the Valley of Kauai. He, descri he describes one occasion when at the end of a workday, the tools were being counted before the prisoners returned to their quarters. A guard declared that a shovel was missing and he began to get very angry and yell and demanding to know which prisoner had stolen it. 
and working himself into a paranoid, uh, paranoid fury, he ordered whoever was guilty to step forward for punishment. Whoever stole this, come forward for punishment. No one did. And so he yelled, all die, all die. He cocked his rifle and aimed it at the prisoners. And at that moment, one man stepped forward, standing at attention, he claimed and declared, I did it, I did it. The Japanese guard at once clubbed this prisoner to death. And as his friends carried away his lifeless body, the shovels and the tools, they were recounted only to reveal that there was no missing shovel. There was no missing shovel. Imagine if you can the effect upon his fellow prisoners of this man's sacrifice for them. This man knew he had done nothing wrong, but for his friends, for his brothers in arms, he stepped forward to do this for them, not knowing what would happen and probably knowing even that he would die for this. It's a profound and moving story of sacrifice and heroism, but y'all, yet it falls short of being an adequate illustration of the sacrifice of Jesus because y'all, there is no adequate illustration for what Jesus has done. There's nothing that can describe what he has ultimately accomplished for us. And what Paul is saying that in our hardest and most difficult moments of disunity, y'all, we look to Jesus's example. We look to his example. We empty ourselves of our own agendas, of our own desires, and we unify for the mission. Y'all, I've said this before, but Jesus left heaven for us so that we could unify around his mission. Jesus left heaven for us so that we could be unified around his mission, the way that he did that for us. And that's what Paul is getting at here in verses nine through 11. As we're gonna read here in just a second, Paul proclaims Christ and he pushes us to unify by bringing more worshipers into this heavenly family. And so that leads to our last way to pursue unity through humility. We must proclaim Jesus together. We must proclaim Jesus together. And so let's reread these last verses together, verses nine through 11. It says this, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. We do this, y'all, as we think about proclaiming Jesus together and doing this in unity. We do this in many different ways at Redemption. We do this through our singing as we've already done today. We do this through serving each other on Sunday mornings and in community groups. And you think about this, the people that helped you park this morning, the people that held the doors for you, the people in the kids area right now that are taking care of our kids and teaching them the gospel. All these people right now are putting others before themselves and they're proclaiming what Jesus has done for them together. They're doing this by the way that they serve our church, the way that they love together. And let's continue to do that. We proclaim what Jesus has done for us through words and deeds and yes, we need to share the gospel with people. We do verbally, but we also proclaim through our deeds. Y'all, as we said, we're gonna be going to two services here in a couple of weeks and we're making more room for you to be able to invite new people to come and hear about what Jesus is doing and the gospel that he has and the freedom that he brings. It's getting warmer. So we begin to have cookouts to invite people over who don't look like us. There are so many ways that we can be unified indeed. And so as we're thinking about practical ways this morning to be able to apply this passage to our lives, here's some very simple ones, I believe. Number one is this, if you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus here, if you're here today, we praise God for you coming to explore and learn 
uh, about Jesus. And we praise God for that, but you cannot be unified. It's important for us to know, and we cannot be unified with others in the spirit, the way that we've talked about, if we are not unified with Jesus ourselves. And so I wanna urge you today, if you are uh, not a follower of Jesus, I wanna beg you to accept Jesus's unconditional love for you today. Accept Jesus's love for you and be unified with him. We're gonna have prayer counselors right down front. They would love at the end of our time today, they would love nothing more than to be able to talk to you more about that and to talk to you about what that decision looks like practically in your life. And so we cannot be unified with other believers until we have been unified with Jesus ourselves. But number two, we can't be unified with others without being around them. If you would say that this is your church home, that, that you love redemption, you call it home, Y'all, we have to make the Sunday gathering community groups and serving a priority. We have to do this. Hear me in love this morning, right? You can't be unified with others if you only see them once every few weeks, once every four weeks. And I say that in love. I know there's lots of reasons and other things that we have going on in our life. But y'all, if we are gonna be unified around this mission that God has given us and what he's done, then we have to make it a priority to be around each other, to grow and care for one another, to empty ourselves of our agendas, of our pride and love and serve each other in a way that honors Jesus. We have to do that. Hear me, you can't be unified with others in that way if we're not around them. Y'all, unity takes work. We have to be willing to give ourselves to one another in the same way that Jesus gave himself to us. We have to be willing to give ourselves to one another in the same way that Jesus gave himself to us. That's what unity is all about. It's about making much of the name of Jesus and the end goal of our unity is the mission. That's the end goal. That's where unity is heading toward. We wanna see people from all tribe, every tongue, every nation come together, praising Jesus, praising God for who he is and what he's done because he deserves all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. And that is what Jesus did for us through his sacrifice, he brought us in. The end goal of unity, of our unity is verses 10 and 11. It says, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. We want to see this mission realized together. Y'all, that's why 20 some people moved their lives to Roanoke, Virginia some three years ago because they believe God united them through the gospel and the outworking of that was to see others come into that new family. Y'all, most of us in this room are here this morning because of those 20 people be united around that mission that they would move their lives here to start Redemption Church. Let's continue to unite around the gospel for that mission, amen? Amen. And so as we close our time together, I wanna share one final story with you. It's a story of true Christ-like humility as we're thinking about this, how does it play out naturally in our lives? I don't know if you've ever heard of the name George Lyle, but he's actually was known as the first Protestant missionary to go out from America, even though he wasn't supported by any church or denominational agency. He was the first, known as the first American missionary to leave the United States to go somewhere else. And what's so amazing about George Lyle is that he grew up as a slave in Virginia. In around 1750, 
And he came to know Jesus through his dad and another faithful minister. His owner at the time gave Lyle his freedom, hoping that he would use it in his gifts to see uh, the calling that he had on his life. And he freed him in order to be a missionary around the world. And he was ordained in 1775 and he is recognized as the first ordained black Baptist pastor in Georgia. And he began a church in Savannah with his wife and his four children. But through persecution and almost being forced back into slavery, he made his way to Kingston, Jamaica. So he left the US and went to Kingston, Jamaica. And uh, in Jamaica, he had seen over 500 slaves convert to Jesus. Over 500 slaves come to Christ. And he is known as one of the people who helped to see the abolition of slavery from his adopted land of Jamaica in 1838. A lot of that credit goes to him. He was forced into prison multiple times in Jamaica during this time. And because of his preaching and his ministry, and when he first reached Jamaica in 1814, there was 8,000 Baptist converts. There was 18,000. This number grew to 20,000 in 1832 because of his faithful and humble ministry. Because the way that he humbled himself through all these situations and these trials of his life, he was unified around the mission based on what Jesus had done for him. And he was gonna live his life in a way that honored God in that way. And y'all, my prayer is that we would all take this posture of Jesus and this example of George Lyle and that we would put others before ourselves and that we would pursue unity through humility to see others come to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so let's go ahead and pray this morning. Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.